I'll invite you to uh, turn your Bibles to Psalm 145. We want to look one more time. That's not to say this will be the last time, but one more time at some tremendous verses of Scripture. Now, the series we're teaching is Jesus, our high priest. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 says that it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Specifically, the Bible says God raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at at his own right hand in a place of honor, a place of glory, a place of power, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Those are the two descriptions, the two adjectives that it gives to describe Jesus and his work, his present day ministry at the right hand of God today. He's faithful and he is merciful. Think about that for a minute. He's faithful and merciful. Now, it could say anything. It could say that he's loving. It could say that he is willing to execute judgment. could say that he's earned the right to decide who gets what and who doesn't. could say any number of things, but the Bible uses two descriptions of Jesus, faithful and merciful. He's seated at God's right hand to be faithful and to be merciful to you. Now, what does that mean? Well, Hebrews chapter 3, whoever's writing the book of Hebrews, I think it's Paul, but whoever it was, continues with the same thing and says, consider, Hebrews 3, 1, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Our words, in other words. In other words, he's faithful to honor God's words coming out of your mouth. That's where he's faithful. He's faithful to honor God's words when you speak them. That's where the faithfulness of God comes in. And secondly, he is merciful. Now, Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9 are going to tell us a little bit about the mercy of God. The Bible says some interesting things about God's mercy. First of all, it says God never changes. So whatever mercy we see in the Old Testament is going to be the same mercy we see in the New Testament, which is the same mercy we'll see throughout eternity. doesn't end with the book of Revelation. God doesn't change when Revelation ends. He's the same forever. His character and his nature is the same forever. So we see that God doesn't change and therefore His mercy doesn't change. And the Bible also describes in these verses of Scripture what mercy really is. How is Jesus a merciful high priest? Well, let's start reading in verse 8. Psalm 145, verse 8. It says, The Lord is gracious. The word gracious means disposed to show favors. We've talked about this before, but I think it bears repetition. Some people are naturally disposed to be optimists. Some people are naturally disposed to be pessimists. Some people are naturally disposed to be introverts. Some people are naturally disposed to be extroverts. There are certain ways that you are made. Your personality characteristics, whatever you want to call them. Uh, I'm sure there's all kinds of different descriptions that people could give and reasons for it. But we have certain things about us that we are disposed to. You know what God's natural disposition is? He's naturally disposed to show favors. I've got to tell you, if you're naturally disposed to anything, that sounds like a pretty good thing to be to me. Some of the things I see about myself and the way that I'm naturally disposed is kind of like, well, I need to either change that, cover that up, or whatever. If you were naturally disposed to show favors, you wouldn't have any problem with what somebody thought about that, would you? That's what the Bible means where it says God's gracious. The Lord is gracious, disposed to show favors, and full of compassion. Now, if you're full of something, you can't be, there's no room for anything else. And the Bible describes, and these words mean exactly what they're, what they're translated to be here. It means he is full of compassion, full to overflowing, in other words. 
So many times people have an idea that God is a, a, an austere judge sitting in heaven. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says to his children, and this is written to his children, that he is full of compassion. Now, there comes a time where God's going to judge the world, yeah. There's no question about that. But that's not you and me. That's not those that have accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior. God's not your judge. The Word of God is. The Scripture is your judge. That's why the Bible says God has given it to us for instruction, for correction. God expects you and I to correct ourselves based on what the Bible tells us. Why? So that we don't have to be judged. Judge yourself and you won't be judged. That's what the Bible tells us. How do we judge ourselves? According to the Word. So to His children, He is disposed to show favors and full of compassion. Slow to anger. Thank God for that part. Slow to anger and of great mercy. Now, folks, I have no doubt that every one of us have proved the slow to anger part in our own lives. Right? We don't even need to talk about that. You know firsthand God is slow to anger. Right? And of great mercy. Now, we've made this statement before, but again, it bears repetition. The word mercy and compassion are the same word. Same word in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, same word in the Greek, in the New Testament. The word mercy and the word compassion literally means this. It means to love tenderly, to be full of eager yearning, to have pity upon. Now, what does that mean? That means God wants more for you than you want for yourself. He wants to do more for you than you want him to do. Now, that needs to sink in because that's hard for us to accept. We think, well, nobody wants better for me than me. Well, actually, the Lord does. He wants better for you than you do. He's full of eager yearning. Verse 9, the Lord is good to a few, lucky ones, the real righteous ones. No, it says the Lord is good to all. And His tender mercies are over all of His works. Notice that. His tender mercies are over all of His works. That means very specifically this. If you can find anything that God ever did, it was because of His mercy. It's saying that mercies, His tender mercies are the source, the origin of everything that He's ever done. That means any miracle you see Jesus performing in the, in the four Gospels was because of His tender mercy. That means any work that God did through the prophets in the Old Testament was because of His tender mercy. It means God sending Jesus to the earth was because of His tender mercy. Everything he's ever done was based upon and originated in his tender mercies. Meaning nobody ever deserved anything. Well, then why did he do it? You know, we could accept and, and maybe understand that God would sometimes do good things. That we, would, we could accept that, you know, sometimes God would do things that we didn't deserve. But the fact of the matter is the Bible says everything God ever did was because of his tender mercies. Now, some people will hear that and they'll go back to, yeah, we don't deserve it. That's not the point, folks. Lord, I'm not worthy. The centurion said that. He was making a statement of fact. He said, Lord Jesus, I'm not worthy that you should come into my house, but just speak the word only and my servant will be healed. He didn't keep the thought of or his understanding that he was unworthy for Jesus to come to his house to keep him from receiving what God had. Well, then why should we? Jesus marveled at his great faith. Why shouldn't we follow his example? But so many times people get in this, oh, I'm so unworthy stuff has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, but the devil just keeps telling me I'm unworthy. Then agree with him. 
in the discussion. Yeah, you're right, but his tender mercies are over all of his works. The mercy of the Lord endures forever. You being worthy means nothing. I know sometimes even people take the, the, our position of righteousness as trying to, to prove their worthiness. That's not the point, folks. We are worthy in, the, in, in and through the blood of Jesus. But the fact is the mercy of the Lord endures forever, period. So his tender mercies are over all of his works. Now, we've looked at a lot of things. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 13. We've looked at a lot of things about the mercy of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus in his earthly ministry. We saw that when the leper came to him and said, uh, Master, if you can, you will. I'm sorry. He said, if you will, you can heal me. You have the ability to heal me. I just don't know if you want to. If you're willing to do so. And Jesus was instantly moved with compassion and reached out and touched him and said, I will and healed him. We see also that there were others that, uh, that were healed. Uh, and the Bible says that it was the compassion of Jesus that did it. It's a funny thing that so much of the church world, the religious world, says that Jesus uh, healed to prove that he was the Son of God. But you can't find any of that in the Scripture. What you can find over and over again is that where Jesus was moved with compassion, his mercy was extended to somebody, and that was the, what the Bible identifies as the cause of the healing power that was ministered to them. And it wasn't just limited to healing. We see that, the, that uh, uh, in uh, uh, Mark chapter 5, the madman from Gadara, the guy that was demon-possessed and being controlled by the enemy and, and all kinds of things, just creating a, a terror situation in the, in the region, he was delivered, he was set free, the devil was cast out of him, and Jesus told him to go tell people in his area what great compassion the Lord has had on thee. So it tell, Jesus said that it was his compassion that did the work. Every time that the Bible talks about the mercy or the compassion of God being magnified, multitudes result. Multitudes result. Why? Because it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance, folks. It's not the judgment of God. It's not the, oh, God wants you to keep your nose to the grindstone. He is going to make you suffer and greater the, the trials and the afflictions of the righteous and all this kind of stuff. That's not what brings people to God. What brings people to God is a knowledge of His mercy. You magnify the mercy of God and people want to know what you're talking about. You magnify the hard times and hard places and difficulties in life. And nobody cares about that. They've got enough of those on their own. So the mercy of God, the compassion of God caused this man to be delivered from the devil. Well, that's an example to us. That's, a, uh, that's something that we're supposed to recognize as true still today because the mercy of God doesn't change because God doesn't change. We see also that the mercy of God was extended toward provision. When the multitudes followed Jesus, in one case, he had been without food for three days because they had come to hear him preach and teach the word of God. He said that he has con had compassion on the multitude and he multiplied the loaves and fishes and there was an abundance left. Every time that Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, he commanded the disciples to pick up what was left. God's not a waster. I know a lot of Christians that are wasters. God's not. He commanded that all those things be taken up gathered up and, and there were always baskets full, many baskets full left of the extra. God is a God of abundance, but he's not a waster. Now, what do you think they did with those baskets full of stuff? Well, the Bible says that at the, from, at the Last Supper, when Judas left the table to go betray Jesus, because he was the treasurer, everybody thought he went to go give something to the poor. So that must be a pretty common occurrence for him. I mean, if you get up and leave the auditorium, I don't think that you, well, they've gone to give to the poor. I think, no, they've either gone to the bathroom or they've had enough. One of the two, and it could be either one, depending on the situation. 
So they must have been pretty, pretty consistent in giving to the poor. I wonder if that's what they did with those basketfuls of the food that was left over. I like to think so. I don't have any way to prove it, but I like to think so. So God is a God of an abundance because of his compassion, but he's not a waster. Now, in Luke chapter 13, as we said before, everything that Jesus did, according to the Bible, if the Bible's true, his tender mercies were over all of his works. I want you to see something else related to the mercy of God in this situation. Luke chapter 13, we'll start reading in verse uh, 10. And as he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bound together and could in no wise lift herself up. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. This word loosed is the word translated redeemed or redemption in Ephesians 1.17, in whom we have redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying you're redeemed. I want you to understand something, folks. Unless Jesus really messed up or unless this is not an inspired account, he's telling us redemption is freedom from sickness. Now, like I said, maybe he messed up. Maybe he misspoke. You know, he did that some because the Bible is full of contradictions. Only problem is people that tell you that can't show you one. Or maybe this is just Luke's account and, 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 and maybe he just said what he wanted to say instead of what the Holy Ghost instructed him to say. A lot of people think that the Bible is just written by men. Okay, well... How are you going to prove that one way or the other? It certainly, it certainly con, uh, confirms other things that the Bible says about the same thing. I believe it's an inspired account. If it's not, how do you know what part is inspired and what part's not? How do you know what part of it to trust at all? For me, it's all or nothing. Folks, I'm all in where the Bible is concerned. I hope you are too. So Jesus said, Woman, thou art loose, literally redeemed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Again, you find time and time and time where again where people glorify God, not while they're sick, but when they get well. Yet the modern-day church says you're supposed to glorify God in your sickness. Now, if his tender mercies were over all of his works, then that means that Jesus loosed her because of his mercy. Right? But why did Jesus say that he did it? What was it that caused Jesus' mercy to be triggered in this case to bring this woman freedom. Well, let's keep reading the rest of the story. Verse 14, And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. Religious people are always indignant, folks. Because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. And he said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work, in them therefore come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. So let's see. His excuse was, Well, I don't care that you healed her, but I just don't like the way you did it. I just don't like when you initiated this. Now, folks, she's in the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue's been with her all the time. Why didn't he do something for her? Religious people never will tell you what the real issue is either. The real issue is he doesn't like Jesus coming into his synagogue and messing up with his program. Then the Lord answered and said, oh, I'm sorry. I should have been more mindful of your programs around here. 
Jesus said, you hypocrite. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? Verse 16, an ox. Now you're going to see why Jesus did what he did. It was his mercy that did it, but now he's going to tell you why. And ought not this woman, two reasons. Number one, she's a daughter of Abraham. What does that mean? That means she's got a covenant promise from God. Whether she knows it or not, she's got a covenant promise from God. Number one, and number two, whom Satan has bound, lo, these 18 years. Should she not be loosed on the Sabbath day? Jesus gave two reasons. First one is she's got a covenant promise. Number two is the devil is holding her back. Folks, that is the very reason, the very reason that the devil has used religion to confuse people about whether or not God is making people sick or whether he's bringing suffering or affliction or difficulty or tragedy into their lives. Because if you don't know who your enemy is, you don't know who to fight. And if God is the one doing this stuff, there's no way you can fight him. So the end result of that is you sit back and just say, well, okay, I don't understand this. Maybe God's got some great purpose in this. Jesus, however, took the position that since he knew who was doing what, since he knew it was the devil that always made people sick. Acts 10.38, Peter tells us about Jesus' healing ministry, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about doing good and healing. So healing must be good. Who went about doing good and healing all who? All who needed it, whether God made them sick or the devil made them sick. No, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. So Jesus, uh, the, P- Peter is saying by the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 10 that everybody Jesus healed was oppressed of the devil. That's why Jesus never had to pray and find out when somebody came to him for healing, wait a minute, is it the will of God for you? Well, why does the church do that? Jesus told us to do his works. If Jesus didn't have to pray and find out who's making somebody sick, why should we? Well, you won't if you know the same thing Jesus knows. And that is, sickness is always of the devil. Always. Now somebody will stand up and say, Yeah, but Pastor Mike, there was this situation that I was in and God taught me so much through through my infirmity, through my sickness, through my trouble. Okay, folks, there are things you can learn through sickness. I can save you the trouble of being sick if you want to know what they are. You ready? Here's the big lesson of sickness. It's better to be well. That's it. That's all there is to learn through sickness. Everything else somebody says that they learn through their trouble, you can learn from the Bible. And I would suggest you choose that route. So Jesus says, she's two reasons why he's moving instigating his mercy, initiating his mercy toward her to heal. Number one, she's a daughter of Abraham. She's got a covenant promise from God. And number two, Satan is bounder. Now, why is that important to Jesus? Because the Bible says in 1 John, it says for this purpose, 1 John chapter 3, I think it is, it says for this purpose was the Son of God manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, if you don't know who your enemy is, you don't know what works Jesus destroyed. That's why it's important to take what the Bible says and not what religious doctrine tells us. Or a better way to say that is judge religious doctrine by the Bible. Because if you do, you'll find out a lot of religious doctrine is wrong. Now, folks, I want you to, to, to keep something in mind. Uh, I, I tell you what, turn back with me to, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7 
gives us some real interesting information about a covenant promise that we have from God or any covenant promise that we have from God. Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is when Moses is telling the children of Israel, here's what you're going to find in the promised land. Almost the entirety of the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' last speech, his last message to the children of Israel before he goes off the scene. Joshua's going to take his place. He's going to go up into the mountain. God's going to bury him there. He knows the end of his life is, is at hand. And so he's telling them, giving them last instruction, last warnings. Don't forget God. Here's what it's going to be. Here's, here's, how it's going to, here's what you're going to experience. Here's what you're going to find in the promised land. Remember to, to believe what God said. Don't rebel like your parents did. Keep God first in your life. Things like that. Notice what uh, Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now, the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy tells us all kinds of blessings and all kinds of good things that they're going to find in the promised land. But I want you to look with me to verse 9, first of all. He said, Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God. The faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy. Now, notice the same two things that it says about Jesus being your high priest, faithful and merciful, in Hebrews 2.17. It uses His characteristics of God in the Old Testament. He is faithful, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Now, folks, I don't know if this means literally a thousand generations or if he's just using that as an example of the mercy of the Lord endures forever. I really don't know. But let's consider it as if it is literal. Matthew's gospel starts with the genealogy of Jesus and it tells us that there were 42 generations from Abraham when God first made a covenant with, his, with Abraham and his seed. 42 generations in the 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus. Well, we know it's been another 2,000 years. That's another 42 generations from Jesus till today. So that's 84 generations since God made the covenant with Abraham. And that's the reason that he said in Luke 13 that he set this woman free. She's a daughter of Abraham. So the covenant he's talking about is Abraham's covenant. So that's 84 generations from Abraham till today. That means there's 916 generations left. Now, if you do the math, if 42 generations is 2,000 years, if you do the math, 916 generations is 43,000 years. Man's only been on the earth for 6,000. So seven times longer than the history of mankind on the earth, you've still got a covenant promise from God. Call me crazy. I think that should be enough. (laughs) Now, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, it says, if you're Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That means you've got a covenant blessing from God, a covenant promise from God that's good for at least 43,000 years. And that is if he means that literally in years. Again, I think that he's just using that as an example You know, who's going to stop and think a thousand generations? Well, that's a little longer than I'm alive. That should cover me. I think he's just using that as as a hyperbole for the mercy of the Lord endures forever. But that's just my opinion. But at the very least, we got 916 generations or 43,000 years of God's covenant, keeping his covenant. And keeping his covenant for the woman in Luke 13 meant that she was healed. The covenant hadn't changed. It's been improved upon since Jesus healed her in Luke 13, but it hasn't changed. 
That's why you've got the same covenant promise in Galatians 3 that she had plus everything Jesus did when he came to the cross and died for your sins. Now, folks, one thing I want you to understand, and, and, and here's the reason. We've looked before at, at, at how even those that came to Jesus for compassion, Jesus required faith of them. They'd say, Lord, have compassion on me. And, and Jesus stopped in one case talking to a blind man, and he said, what do you want me to do? Which means compassion is more than just healing. Most people think of compassion, the compassion of the Lord today for forgiveness of sins, but it meant a lot more that in Jesus' in day. So Jesus asked him, he said, what do you want me to do? And he said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus questioned him on his faith. He said, do you believe I can do this? So faith must be an important ingredient even to receive the mercy and the compassion of God. See, so many times people say, well, if God wants me healed, why didn't he do it? Well, mercy means to be full of eager yearning. God wants you to be well more than you want to be well. Well, then why didn't he do it? For the same reason that he doesn't save people apart from their own actions. He wants everybody to be saved, and that's why Jesus died for the sins of the world. Well, then why isn't everybody saved? Because it's their choice. It's their act of faith that makes it theirs. That's what Jesus is telling the blind man. You've got to believe. It's not enough that I can do this. It's not enough that I want to do this. You've got to believe. And so he would say that he answered, okay, Lord, I believe. Jesus asked him, do you believe? He said, yeah, I do. He said, according to your faith, be it unto you. Not according to everything God wants, but according to your faith, be it unto you. In other words, you're going to have to take possession of it by faith, even though the promise of God is yours. That's why everybody is a free moral agent to receive salvation, even though Jesus has already died for the sins of the world. It still comes down to the individual's faith. But folks, there's something about, and I alluded to this when we were receiving the offering earlier this morning, there's something about in the middle of tough times, we start looking for the mercy of God to get us by. But you look at what the mercy of God has shown, it didn't get people by. It totally turned their lives around. Let me show you an example. Turn back with me to the Old Testament. I want you to see two things. We'll look first of all at Second Kings chapter 3. And then while we're there, we'll look into chapter 4 too. Second Kings chapter 3. Elisha is the prophet in the land. Now, you remember the story of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was the one that had the contest between the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. They couldn't, he challenged them. He said, let's both offer sacrifices unto our God. You offer to Baal, I'll offer it unto God. The one that answers by fire, let him be God. <clears throat> they did everything they could, got no response. The devil never comes through. And then they, uh, Elijah just simply prayed a prayer you know, repaired the altar, did everything that he needed to do, poured water on it, made it as hard as possible for God to come through. And then he said, okay, Lord, now show them that I did these things at your word and that I'm your servant, and that you're God in Israel. Fire fell from heaven, consumed the sacrifice, burned up the stones, vaporized the altar, vaporized the water, did everything that was there, and everybody had no doubt, okay, God's God. <clears throat> Elijah kills these 450 prophets of Baal. It doesn't say he has them killed. It says he killed them. He killed these 450 prophets with the sword. And when Queen Jezebel, the queen of, uh, she was Ahab's wife. He was, uh, if not the, certainly one of the most wicked kings in, uh, in, of Israel. <clears throat> when Jezebel hears that Elijah has killed her prophets and they were hers, she'd tell them what she wanted the prophets to prophesy to the people so she could control them. When she heard of that, she said, I'll kill Elijah by this time tomorrow. 
Well, Elijah hears that. Now the anointing of God is not on him. He's done what he did on Mount Carmel because God told him, folks, when you've got the promise of God, there's a boldness that comes through simply believing God's word. But God didn't say anything to him about Jezebel. Now, Elijah could have stood up and said, wait a minute. Seriously? God just answered by fire and you're going to kill me? He could have handled this any way that he wanted to, but he's just as human, he's just as frail, he's just subject to, to, to weakness and imperfection as you and I, and so he starts running. He runs up into the mountain, sits down under a juniper tree and says, oh God, I'm the only one that's left, everybody's backslid but me. God talks to him a little bit, he, he encourages him, try, shows him where he's wrong, he tries to get him back on track, but Elijah won't have anything more to do with it. So finally God says, all right, well, uh, Elijah's big thing was, Lord, just let me die. Well, God basically says, you really shouldn't want that, but okay. Go down and find a certain man named Elisha. He's going to be prophet in your, in your room or in your stead. In other words, he'll take your place. So for a few years, a few more years goes by, and Elisha learns from Elijah. And uh, uh, then Elijah goes off the scene, and, and he, uh, Elisha becomes the prophet of the land. Now, the kingdom of Israel is divided. The northern kingdom is called Israel. Ahab is still the king there. And the southern kingdom, which is called Judah, Jehoshaphat is the king there. You remember we've looked at Second Chronicles chapter 20 where Jehoshaphat was surrounded by the five enemy armies and he sought the Lord. He walks with God. He keeps the commandments of the Lord. And, and so God delivered him with a great, uh, great victory. But Ahab dies and his son takes his place while Elisha is the prophet in the land. Now, we'll pick up the story here in, uh, oh, where do we want to start reading here? Uh, well, I don't want to read a lot of the scripture, so let me, let me recap the story. Jehoram, I think is his name, Ahab's son, is now king in Israel. And so he gets the king of Edom and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, to agree to go together and com combine their armies to fight against Ammon. Or, or I'm sorry, not Ammon, Moab. And because of the way that everything is situated, if you, if you remember the map of the Middle East and, and where the Dead Sea is and all that kind of stuff, Jehoram, the king of Israel, decides that they're going to have to go down south around the bottom of the, of the Dead Sea and then back up around the eastern side of it to reach Moab. Well, the only problem is that's all desert. There's no water down there. Now, the reason they don't go to the north is because Ammon is up there and they don't want Ammon to think that they've come to attack them. And so, uh, so they get out to, and Jehoram says, here's the way we're going to do it. Here, here's, the, here's our battle plans. They get out into the wilderness and they, they go for three days and now there's no water. Well, they've got armies. They've got the, the cattle and, and all the, the, the animals that are pulling all the supplies and all the things that they have. Everybody's dying of thirst. And so Jehoshaphat says, let's go find the prophet which would have been a good idea to do before you agreed to get in with this group. So they find Elisha. Now let's start reading here in verse uh, 12. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him, Elisha. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with thee? Get thee to the prophets of thy father and to the prophets of thy mother. And the king of Israel said unto him, Nay, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Now, the king of their father, the king of his father, and the king of his mother, so the 450 prophets of Baal that Elijah killed. So he says, what are you inquiring of the Lord for? You've never followed God. Your parents didn't follow God. You're not following God either. Why am I supposed to tell you anything? 
Here's the king of Israel's attitude. Everything has gone to pot. We're out here, we're dying of thirst, and all this means that it was the will of God for this to happen. Now, I want you to understand how the devil uses people. He puts them in their own situations by choice. He puts them in their own situations that bring destruction, and then he gives them this sovereignty of God stuff. Oh, this was the will of the Lord. No, it wasn't stupid. You went into the wilderness to attack your enemy. You went three days into the wilderness without enough water. You're saying that's the will of God? How much does that sound like the modern-day church? To me, it sounds a lot like the modern-day church. Every time something goes wrong, they say, oh, this must have been the will of God. Well, so much of the will of God could have been averted if you just hadn't been stupid. (laughs) If you'd done what the Bible said to begin with, like inquire of the Lord, should we do this, you might have avoided the trouble. And Elisha answers and says in verse 14, as the Lord of hosts liveth. Now, folks, that's a phrase that means this is so true that it can never change because that's the way the Lord lives. The Lord is eternal. He's without beginning. He's without end. Elisha says, as the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. Now, folks, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 1, it says wisdom calls. Wisdom tries to instruct. Wisdom, which is the word of God, tries to instruct the people of God to do that which is God's will, to act in accordance with the instruction of the word. But if you reject wisdom and get yourself in trouble, wisdom will laugh at you. That doesn't sound real good, but that's what the Bible says. Wisdom says, I will laugh at your calamity and your destruction when it comes. Why? Because you, reg- you would not have regard to my reproof. You didn't listen to me when I told you what to do to begin with. In other words, the principle of the Bible is true. You're going to eat the fruit of your own way. If you make the word of God your way, then you're going to eat the precious fruit of the blessings of God. If you reject the instruction of the word of God, whether it be healing, whether it be finances for provision, whether it be salvation, no matter what it is, if you reject, if reject and, and turn away from the instruction of the word of God, you're going to make your way hard and you're going to, have, you're going to be the only one to blame for it. And that's what Elisha says. He says, if it were not for Jehoshaphat, who was walking with God, he said, I wouldn't have anything to do with you. But folks, turn it around from Jehoshaphat's standpoint. Because of his covenant promise from God, even though he's messed up with the people he's associated with, he has a right to a turnaround. See, the devil will try to condemn you with everything that he can. But understand that even when people mess up, when they are doers of the word, God turns it around for them. So what does uh, Elisha say? Verse 15, now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus saith the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. Now that's exactly what you want to do when you're out in the hot sun in the wilderness without water. Let's dig ditches. Because that's just the most fun thing you can do out in the middle of the wilderness where no water is and the ground is hard as concrete. Let's dig ditches. Make this valley full of ditches. For thus saith the Lord, you shall not see wind, neither shall you see rain. Yet that valley shall be filled with water that you shall drink both you and your cattle and your beasts. Folks, what I want you to understand is God does not just get his people by. God turns things around. 
the mercy of God turns things around. Now, that's exactly what happened. They go out and they dig ditches. And water comes by way of, uh, what does it say, by way of Edom. The water comes by way of Edom. Now, folks, if this was a common occurrence, somebody would have already dug ditches out there at the very least. This is a supernatural event. It didn't rain, but God supplied water. Where did he get it from? We don't know. Other than it says it came by way of Edom, we don't know. But God didn't have any trouble finding it. Just because we don't know doesn't mean it was tough for God. So he says, make this way full of ditches or make this valley full of ditches. Verse 18, notice what he says. And this is but a light thing in the sight of God. And he will deliver the Moabites into your hand. And you will smite every fenced city and every choice city and yourself. Fell every good tree and stop all the wells of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. Folks, I want you to see that God turned their absolute defeat into victory. Because Jehoshaphat had a covenant promise. And the Bible says something that seems so miraculous to us. It says this is easy for God. This is but a light thing with God. God didn't even have to stand up from his throne to do this. Easy. Now I would suggest that that's a greater miracle than anything you're looking for from the Lord. And God said that was a light thing. Well, if that was a light thing, what's your thing? piece of cake we don't think so sometimes because we're so focused in on the circumstances and the threats of those circumstances but this is a light thing it worked exactly the way he said next morning water came rushing in they had dug the ditches well what if they hadn't dug those ditches what if they said oh that's never going to work i don't it's too hot out here to work man this ground's hard Elisha must not have known how hard this ground was when he told us to do that. Surely God wouldn't want us to do that. What if they hadn't dug the ditches? Well, they wouldn't have had anything to collect the water. The water would have come and gone and missed them. They wouldn't have had anything to collect the water. The Bible says when the Moabites came up the next morning, they saw the sun reflecting off of the water. It looked red to them, and so they thought all the people had killed each other. So they just go sashaying into camp thinking all we have to do is pick up the stuff. Walked right into the camp. Israel killed them, destroyed them, sent them on their way. God turned an absolute defeat into an absolute victory. Why? Because his tender mercies are over all of his works. But Jehoshaphat was the key. He had a covenant promise. Now here's where you might say, yeah, but that's Old Testament. How does that apply to us? Hold your finger here. We're going to come back to chapter 4 in just a moment. But turn with me over to to, uh, Psalm 84. This was not a one-time occurrence. Or it's not supposed to be looked on by us as it was just some special one-time thing that would never happen again. How do we know? Because Psalms tells you what to do when you find yourself in the middle of your valley. Psalm 84. Let's start reading in verse uh, 4. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will all still be praising thee. How do you know you're dwelling in the house of the Lord? You're the one praising God. That's what he's saying. Blessed are they that dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, Psalms also says, he asked a question, who is it that shall dwell in the holy hill of the Lord? He says two things. The one that has clean hands and a pure heart. 
Here he says the characteristics, therefore, of, a clean, of clean hands and a pure heart is that the person is always praising God. That sounds a lot like what Paul told the church. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Folks, that's supposed to be a lifestyle. It's not supposed to be a church activity. It's supposed to be a lifestyle. That's the thing that will keep you dwelling in the covenant blessings of God. I'll show you. Prove it to you. Blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They will still be praising thee. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee and whose heart are the ways of them. That's a real poor translation. In whose ways are you, in other words. In other words, in their heart are your ways, is what it's trying to say. They've made the word their, their, their focus. Who, what do they do? What does somebody do that has made God's way their way? Who, passing through the valley of Baca, now, the Valley of Baca is not a real place. It's not a geographic location. You can't find any reference to it in, uh, in, in the Old Testament. You can't find any reference to it in, in any of the historical writings of the day. You can't find any reference whatsoever. The word Baca is translated in a, different, in a couple of different ways. The margin of my Bible has mulberry trees. Any of you have that in yours? Well, a mulberry tree is a low-growing bush that's full of thorns. And so what it literally means is if you're going through a valley that's full of thorns... You're going to be in a real tough spot. It's also called the valley of tears. It's called the valley of weeping. It's called the valley of mourning. He's saying when you go through your times of affliction, when you go through the times which are hard for you, when you go through the places that cause you to cry and weep and mourn and wish that things were different, he's saying here's what the person who has made his strength in the Lord, who has made God's ways a part of his heart, here's what that person will do. In the middle of your tough time, the valley of the shadow of death, in other words, who passing through the valley of tears or mourning, make it a well. The rain also filling the pools. What's he saying? He's saying just like Elisha told Jehoshaphat and, and, and the other guys to dig, make the valley full of ditches, he said that's how you're going to have to live your life. You're going to have to make your life full of those ditches to catch the reign of God even in the middle of the trouble. Now what does that mean? What does that mean to us? Well, let's keep reading. They go from strength to strength. People that are praising God and make ditches in the middle of their, their valley of the shadow of death, they go praising God. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appeareth before God. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold, O God, our shield, and look upon the face of thine anointed. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, sometimes people will quote that. They'll say, oh, it's better to be one day in the house of God than a thousand days in the tents of the wicked. That's great. It's a good principle to be, to, to be mindful of. But the principle, what the Bible is trying to tell you, is dwelling in the house of God is the one is, is, uh, is exemplified by the one who's always praising God, the one who's digging ditches, in other words, making room for the miraculous when it looks like there's no way in the middle of a hard place. That's what keeps you strengthened. Now, Jehoshaphat finds this out later on. Because when he is surrounded by the five enemy armies, what do they do? They hear the word of the Lord. Go out against them. The battle's not yours. It's mine. So what do they do? They put singers and praisers out front. What do they praise? They sing, the Lord is good for his mercy endures forever. 
What are they doing? They're digging ditches in the valley. They did it naturally in 2 Kings chapter 3. They did it spiritually in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 by singing praise unto the Lord. And when they began to sing into praise, the Lord said ambushments. So a day in, the house, in thy courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Septuagint said, the Lord God gives mercy and truth. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now what's the walking uprightly he's talking about? He's talking about being doers of the word and praising God continually. That's the example that he set for us here. He says when the person does that, is a doer of the word and praising God continually, he says God won't withhold any good thing from them. Paul went further in the New Testament. He said if God, who is already giving you Jesus, which is his best, how could God hold back anything else from you? Shall he not also with him freely give us all things? O Lord of hosts, verse 12, we'll finish it. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusteth in thee. How do we know we're trusting in him? Because we've made God's way a part of our heart and we're continually praising him. Now turn back with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. Elisha's on the scene again. I'll start in verse 1. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. Thou knowest thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take, un, uh, take unto him my two sons to be a bondman. So you get the picture. Here's one of the sons of the prophets. He dies, didn't leave his wife anything. He was in debt. The rule and the law of the day is the creditor can come and take away her sons to work off the debt and to satisfy the debt of the father. So here, even though this guy was one of the sons of the prophet, apparently he didn't provide well for his family. And Elisha said unto her, and she's in a tough spot. I mean, she's at the, at the point of losing everything. So Elisha says, said unto her, you know what you need to do? You need to organize a protest against those evil creditors. We could call it Occupy Samaria. <laughs> Folks, it's real easy to take certain Bible verses and try to justify political positions, isn't it? Heard this week that President Obama is doing some of the regulation he's doing in the financial area because it's what Jesus would do. I'm thrilled to hear that because if he's listening to Jesus on that, then that means it be, won't be long before he'll hear what Jesus said about no supporting the murder of innocent children, unborn children. I'm all for that. And I can't wait till he gets to the verse where Jesus said, quit lying. So this is great news for me. Oh, Pastor Mike, aren't you afraid people will leave your church over that? No, I'm not. Because if somebody's more political than they are Christian, they're not going to last around here anyhow. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying if we only had a Republican in there, boy, they'd do right. Yeah, those Republicans, they're always honest, aren't they? <laughs> Folks, the answer is not in politics. 
But it offends me when somebody pulls out some obscure scripture and says, here's why I'm doing this. Give me a break. Learn what you're talking about if you're going to use it. Wouldn't it be great if the next election was about what the Bible said? Yeah, fat chance of that. So anyway, this woman comes to Jesus, or comes to, what's his name, Elisha. Says, I'm going to lose my two sons. And Elisha said unto her, verse 2, what shall I do for thee? Tell me, what hast thou in the house? Notice she doesn't tell him to go to the king and look for a handout. He said, what do you have? Because the rule is, folks, God will always bless you. Quit looking for somebody to bail you out. God will help you. What do you have in the house? And she said, Thy handmaid has not anything in the house save a pot of oil. The Septuagint says that it's a pot to anoint myself with, or oil to anoint myself with. So literally what he's talking about is deodorant. That's what people used oil for back in those days. They didn't, they didn't bathe like we do, took showers every day and stuff like that. So you covered the stink by putting scented oil on you. So it's deodorant. It's the, what we would know of as deodorant. And he said, Go borrow thee vessels abroad of thy neighbors, even empty vessels. Borrow not a few. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and shalt pour out unto all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons and brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said unto her, There's not another vessel. And the oil stayed. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay thy debt, and live thou and thy children of the rest. Now, folks, I would submit to you that the mercy of God, his tender mercies are over all of his works. I would submit to you that the mercy of God made a complete turnaround from absolute destruction to abundance. Not barely get by. But I would also submit to you for your consideration. I'm not saying this is the word of the Lord. But consider this. What if she had recognized what she was being told by the prophet and contacted the local pot maker. Contracted with him to keep bringing her pots until the point in time where her sons could learn to make their own pots. She could have gone in business forever. Now, the blessing of God paid her debt, and they had a little bit, well, a little bit. We don't know how much. We know that they lived off of the rest. But, folks, do you not understand that it would have kept going until she ran out? God's not the one that said, okay, borrow enough vessels to cover it. But if you get more than 100, now that, you know, you understand 100 is the limit. Yet that's what we do. We limit God. We think, okay, God can do this, but I don't know if he'll go beyond that. Just don't know if you'll go beyond that. Let me show you something. Turn with me over to Psalm 112. Psalm 112. I'll run through the rest of this real quick. I know I'm running out of time. And some of you folks have your Super Bowl, Super Bowl parties to get to. For goodness sakes, we don't want to cut into that. Psalm 112, praise ye the Lord. Verse 1, blessed is the man that feareth the Lord that delighteth greatly in his commandments. His seed shall be mighty on the earth. First thing God says is he'll bless your children. His seed shall be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Verse 3, wealth and riches shall be in his house. 
and his righteousness endures forever. Have you ever noticed that it says both wealth and riches? It's over and over again throughout the, mostly the Old Testament, but over and over again throughout the Bible, it talks about wealth and riches together. We think of them as one and the same. We think that if you're rich, you're wealthy. That's not what the Bible indicates. In fact, there's a lot of people that are rich that make a lot of money that are in debt up to their eyes. They make a lot of money, they spend a lot of money, and they don't have anything to show for it. I love what this word wealthy means. If you go back and look it up from the original Hebrew, it literally means, it has several meanings, but let me give you a few of them. One of them means to be light. The other means to come to naught. Now, we would think, wait a minute, those seem, like to, be, those seem to be conflicting. That's not what it's saying. It's saying to be light meaning to have no worries, to come to naught, you've got enough so that nothing bothers you. In other words, trouble comes to naught, not your possessions. The, the, the meaning that I particularly like about this is, it, is very simply this. The word wealth, this word that's used wealth, means the ability to be ready. The ability to be ready. Now, riches means money. So it's saying not only does somebody have riches, they've got the money, but also they have an abundance of the money so that they're ready for whatever comes. Now I think of that in terms of what God tells me to do. Now some people say, ah, oh, that prosperity gospel, I don't know, I just don't go with that prosperity gospel. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I think I agree with that. I think we ought to call things what the Bible calls them. I think we ought to call it the wealth and riches gospel. It's a promise. It's a covenant promise. Whether you like it or not, and, and, and please don't misunderstand me, you don't have to have it. If you don't put your faith on it, you won't have it. So it's okay. It's okay with me. It's okay with God. He doesn't force anybody to do anything. But please notice that this belongs to the person that fears the Lord and that keeps his commandments. Wealth and riches are in his house. Folks, you can't find anything where the Bible said God will just get you by. God is not the God of just getting by. Now, I know that makes some people mad, and that's a lot of the reason why I say it. But it's absolutely the truth. It's absolutely the truth. Wealth and riches are in his house. Wealth and riches are in his house. Can I show you a couple other things? We're right here in verse, uh, verse one, uh, Psalm 112. Look at Psalm 113. Let's start reading in verse oh, 4. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like unto the Lord our God who dwelleth on high? Who humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the dunghill that he may set him with princes, even the princes of his people. That sounds like a big turnaround to me. He says he lifts the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the dunghill. That would be the equivalent of the garbage dump. Oh, yeah, but Pastor Mike, things are tough. I know. That's why I'm talking about this. Folks, God does not want you to be less blessed now 
because the economy is going south than he's ever wanted you to be blessed. In fact, there's more opportunity for this tremendous turnaround now than there ever has been. Can I show you a couple other scriptures? Turn with me over to Haggai chapter 2. I know your Bible just falls automatically open to Haggai. I'm going to read verses 7 through 9, and and I'm going to read a couple of verses out of the Septuagint. It says, And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Now he's talking to them. At this point in time, they're building the second temple. The first temple was Solomon's temple. After that was destroyed, uh, Babylon came and took away all the gold and silver and everything that they had. Then they started rebuilding the second temple. Now the second temple never, never measured up to Solomon's temple. The third temple was Herod's temple. It was beautiful. And Jesus was walking through there. And the disciples said, hey, have you ever seen anything this pretty in your life? And Jesus said, this is nothing. He said, within a generation, this thing will not have one stone left upon another. So Jesus wasn't impressed with the second temple. I'm sorry, Jesus wasn't impressed with Herod's temple. The second temple never matched the glory. People were weeping and crying about how much poorer the second temple was than Solomon's temple, the ones that had seen them both. So when he talks about the the glory of the latter temple, he's not talking about Israel's temple. He's talking about the church. So he says, I will fill this house, the church, in other words, with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Now notice what he says in verse 8. He said, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. Now, folks, I don't care what you think about this. Silver and gold has to have something to do with glory. Or else God was just off his rocker. He said, I'll fill the house with glory. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. He surrounds silver and gold with glory. Glory in verse 7, glory in verse 9. Surrounding the silver and gold. Now, folks, I'm not preaching materialism. I'm preaching abundance for a reason. Remember the promise that he made to Abraham. He said, go where I tell you to go. He said, I will, I will make of you a great nation. He said, I will bless you and you shall be a blessing. There's a reason for being blessed. And that's not just so we can have more cars, more houses, more stuff. The reason for being blessed is so that we can get the gospel out to the people that don't know. But please understand, I am absolutely, absolutely encouraging you to stretch your faith to believe for more. Why? Because of the mercy of God. Absolutely. Make no mistake about it. You should be believing God for increase so that you can do more than you're doing now. Because the tighter and tighter and tighter things get economically, the less and less and less people are going to have, unless they're being doers of the word, unless they're believing according to the covenant promises, the less they're going to have to do the work of the gospel. And what do you think the devil's purpose in this would be? To stop the work of the gospel. He didn't care about politics. He didn't care who's in charge. He couldn't couldn't care less. People get all all up in arms about this political thing and that political thing. The devil doesn't care about politics. He uses it, but he doesn't care about politics because he knows there's something more going on. He knows this stuff down here is just a distraction. He knows the work of the church is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And if he can rob us of the means to do that, he can hamper our efforts. 
So God said, The silver is mine and the gold is mine. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. Now notice this phrase, And in this place will I give peace. That word peace is the word shalom. It's translated prosperity in other places throughout the Old Testament. Let me read it to you from the, trans, from the Septuagint. Um, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord Almighty, even peace of soul for a possession to everyone that builds to raise up this temple. Now what temple is he talking about? Well, he may certainly be talking about the temple, the second temple that they were building. But Paul said, know ye not that you are the temple of the living God? The glory of the latter house he's talking about is our temple. He's talking about us and the connection that he makes. He makes it, not me. He makes it. He makes the connection of the glory of the latter dates. House of God shall be greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. The glory of the church, in other words, shall be greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. And he says, the silver and gold is mine. He said, in this place, in this place, in the church, I'll give peace. That word peace is not limited to finances and provision, but it includes it. It's translated prosperity. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Even peace of soul for a possession to everyone that builds the church. Remember what John said? John writing to, to uh, oh, what was his name? Anyway, it doesn't matter what his name is. John, the third, uh, third epistle of John, verse 2, he said, I wish or pray above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as thy soul prospers. The Old Testament is talking about the prosperous soul. The Old Testament is talking about the prosperous soul as a result of building the church. I wonder if that's what it means today. Well, yeah, that's part of it. It has to do with renewing your mind, being a doer of the word, living a life of praise unto God, not because we're barely getting by, but praise to turn things around. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. He starts off in, well, I'm just going to read it. He starts off in verse 1. My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace. Here's the word prosperity again, the word shalom. Length of days and long life and peace. That means well-being in every area, not just finances, but it means well-being in every area, including finances. Long, length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Have you ever thought about that? Length of days and long life are not the same thing. He'll stretch your days out and he'll give you a long life too. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Now what does he say will cause you to have favor? Attaching yourself, holding fast to mercy and truth. We know that truth is the word of God. But notice that mercy has something to do with this too. We haven't changed subjects. We're still talking about the mercy of God. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not to your own understanding. There are going to be some times where the Bible tells you to do something that doesn't make sense to your head. Pick the Bible. In all that, uh, tithing may be one of those. Tithing doesn't make sense to your head. How am I going to get ahead financially when I'm giving away 10% when I don't have 10% to give? Stick with the Bible. 
In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to your navel and marrow to your bones. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of your increase. Now, the first fruits of your increase is the tithe. Notice he says on top of that, honor the Lord with your substance. I love this word honor because the word honor here literally means to be heavy. It's talking about being generous. It's saying be heavy, weigh God down with your substance. This is the same word that's used over in uh, Psalm 91. The last few verses of the, of, the, of the psalm, it says, Because he set his love upon me, I will deliver him. Because he has known my name, I will set him on high. When he calls upon me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I'll satisfy him and show him my salvation. God's saying, you set your love on him by being doer of his word. He said, just like you weigh me down, I'll weigh you down with blessings. Give and it'll be given unto you. That's the principle he's showing. Honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of all your increase, so shall your barns be filled with plenty. Please notice why God wants you to tithe and why he wants you to be generous with your substance. Why? Because he's interested in your barns. Oh, Pastor Mike's just trying to get bigger offerings. Uh Uh-uh. I'm interested in your barns. Because if I can get your barns bigger, offerings will increase. So shall your barns be filled with plenty. God didn't say, so shall I have more. So shall your barns be filled with plenty. And your presses burst forth with new wine. My son despised not the chastening of the Lord. Now, why in the world is he talking about chastening and instruction in the middle of this? Because he's saying very simply this. Here's the right way to get it. Now, folks, everybody wants money. Money means more to some people than other people. But everybody wants money. Let's just be honest about it. If, if we didn't want money, then we wouldn't have any desire to live because money is a necessity of life. We all want money. Everybody wants money. The most religious, the most saintly person on the face of the earth wants money. Now, for me, money doesn't mean anything. You, you'd be real hard-pressed to find somebody that money means less to than me. But it's still a necessity. But I've got to tell you, I'm believing for some financial things that are too big to even tell you. That's not because I'm money-hungry. That's the thing the devil will say. Well, you're just being selfish. You just want to consume it on your own lust. Are you kidding me? Seriously? I had a conversation with the devil about this. I got so tired of hearing that. I let that go for so long. Finally, I got sick of hearing it. I said, are you serious? This November, I will have been walking with the Lord. I will have been saved for 50 years. 35 of those years, I've been walking in the Word. And you're telling me I'm selfish? Folks, you need to know yourself. You need to know your own heart. You need to know your own motives. Since that time, this idea that I'm being selfish, oh, I just want more because of me and all this kind of stuff, has had absolutely no dent, made no mark on me whatsoever. It's laughable. Laughable. So what's he saying? He's saying in verse 11, he's saying, now I know it's tough to obey the word sometimes. 
But don't turn away from the instruction of God. God's trying to get your barns full. My son, despise not the, instru- the chastening of the Lord. It means instruction. Literally, it means argument. Don't turn away from God's argument. He's right. Neither to be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. How? Through sickness and disease? No, through the word. He loves those that he corrects. That's why he gives you the word, because he loves everybody. It's for everybody. Anybody can act on it. You choose. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. Happy is the man that finds wisdom. In other words, the one that does what the Bible says. Please notice the key to happiness. Oh, I just wish I knew how to be happy. Here it is. Happy is the man that finds wisdom. That's how you can know who's got it. You get so much of the church world, oh, life is so hard, but, but Jesus is coming back. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom there. Happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver. And the gain thereof is fine gold. Than fine gold. He's saying wisdom will get you those things. Therefore, wisdom is the greater. She is more precious than rubies. Still talking about wisdom. And all the things that you can desire are not to be compared to her. Now, what do you desire? What is it you want? Whatever it is, it can't hold a candle to wisdom. Because wisdom will fill your pockets. Wisdom will fill your life with joy. Wisdom will bring you blessing. And the blessing of the Lord, in other words, the blessings that come through wisdom, maketh rich, and he adds no sorrow to it. But there's a whole lot of other sorrow. There's a lot of sorrow attached to the many other blessings that are out there when you go about your own way to get them. She is more precious than rubies and all the things that you can desire are not to be compared to her. Length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness and all her, ple- all her paths are peace. That word is prosperity. It's the word shalom. She is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her and happy is everyone that retains her. So what does it say? It says you get wisdom and then you have to hold on to it. Solomon got wisdom but he didn't hang on to it. One last scripture or passage of scripture and that's over in Malachi chapter 3. Folks, I'm trying to make the point that God doesn't want you just get to, buy, to just get by. He wants you to understand that his mercy will put you over and set you on high. Malachi chapter 3. I'm going to read from the uh, uh, Septuagint on this so you follow along with me. We'll start in verse 6. Let me get there. I want to be able to compare it too. Malachi 3, beginning in verse 6. For I am the Lord your God, and I am not changed. But you, the sons of Jacob, have not refrained from the iniquities of your fathers. You have perverted my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, saith the Lord Almighty. But you say, wherein or how shall we return? In other words, they're saying, we never left. God answers, will a man insult God? King James says, Rob, Septuagint says, insult. I like that. Listen to this. Will a man insult God? For you insult me. But you say, where or how have we insulted thee? In that the tithes and first fruits are with you still. Now, that's an interesting concept. The Bible says the tithe is the, belongs to the Lord and it is holy unto him. Have you ever thought that when you don't pay your tithes, 
God doesn't consider that to be gone when the next payday comes around. You're still holding his tithe. So he's still talking about insulting him. You insult me in that the tithes and first fruits are with you still. And they'll get this part. And you do surely look off from me and you insult me. Now here, what I like about this is it brings out the thought that when you look to some other source for your physical or financial well-being, that's an insult to God. I never thought about it like that. Have you? When you look to some other source, whether it's your paycheck, whether whatever it is, when you look to something else to provide for you except, for, except God or other than God, God said that's an insult to him that you're looking away from him. Verse 10, the year is completed and you have brought all the produce into the storehouses, but there shall be plunder thereof in its house. Return now on this behalf, saith the Lord Almighty. See if I will not open you the torrents of heaven and pour out my blessing upon you until you are satisfied. Now what, what he's saying is very simply this. The Septuagint reads this way. It's saying you've already reaped your harvest. You've got all the crops in. You've filled your barns or you put your barns in the storehouse. But it's not going to work for you there. It'll be eaten up even where it is. Why? Because you've insulted me. You're still holding the tithe and the first fruits. Then he goes further and he says, but he said, return now on this behalf. The tithes and the first, the, the, the tithes and first fruits are with you still. He said, return on this behalf, saith the Lord Almighty. See if I will not open to you the windows of heaven or the torrents of heaven. King James says windows, the torrents of heaven. What's he saying? He's saying, I'll cause more rain so you'll grow more stuff. You think the rain is ended. You think the season's over. I'll keep it going for you. That's what he's saying. Until you are satisfied. King James says until, that there be not, may not be room enough to receive. I've always had a hard time with that. Because that can't just be finances. But this brings out the point. Until you are satisfied. Now folks, have you ever noticed that some people are satisfied with something that somebody else is not? And those of us that are satisfied with less, we kind of look over at the other people down our nose. Well, they should be satisfied. They don't need all that. Have you ever settled for something? You know what a blessing that is? You settle for something. And maybe it's in a restaurant. Maybe it's something simple, something small in a restaurant where, where somebody brings you something other than what you ordered. And you say, well, that'll be all right. And you get halfway through it and you think, I didn't want this. I'm not satisfied with this. Until you are satisfied. He said, I'll keep bringing the rains of heaven to you. Torrents of water until you are satisfied. That goes back to the woman that Elisha talked to in 2 Kings 4. If she hadn't been satisfied, if she had kept the pots coming, if she had seen what was going on and told her son, go run to the pot maker. Tell him what's going on. Don't tell him the whole thing. Just tell him that we're filling pots and that we'll split the profits with him. Make some deal. Make the best deal you can and keep those pots coming. She could have kept those. If she was alive today, they'd still be pouring oil. Because it would have gone until she was satisfied. Now, what was the point of her satisfaction? She ran out of pots. I want you to understand, folks, the Bible is saying, that God will bless you to the point where you say, okay, I don't need any more. 
Now, I don't know about for you, but for me, that point is way, way, way out there. And I'm not ashamed to say it. It wouldn't bother me to be the first billionaire pastor in the world. Man, can you imagine the stuff I could do with a billion dollars? Some of you are thinking, would the benevolence program increase? (laughs) Yeah, it would. Until you're satisfied. You're the one that says enough. You're the one that says enough. Somebody brought out to me the other day, I was talking to him about the scripture. They brought out to me the other day that John Calvin's commentary, John Calvin, sovereignty of God guy, not my favorite commentator. John Calvin says about this. John Calvin says of this verse, God will bless you until you say it's enough. You know what I want for every one of you? I want for every one of you to stretch your faith so that you can do more for the kingdom of God. I don't care if you do it through us. It doesn't matter to me. But I want you to stretch your faith so that you have more, so that wealth and riches are in your house, so that you can do more for the kingdom of God in whatever way you choose. That's between you and God. Let me give you a a mark to shoot for. Believe God to increase so that your tithe is is more than what what you earn now. Oh, Pastor Mike, but don't you know how some people would get selfish and they'd run off and do the wrong thing? No, they wouldn't because if their heart's not in the right place, it wouldn't work for them. I want to give my kids everything I have when they grow up. Not till then because they'll waste everything I have. I wonder if God's that smart. You think? Verse 11, and I will appoint food for you and I will not destroy the fruit of your land and your vine in the field shall not fail, saith the Lord Almighty. And all nations shall call you blessed for you shall be a a desirable land, saith the Lord Almighty. You have spoken grievous words against me, saith the Lord, yet you say, wherein have we spoken against thee? You said, here's the answer, here's what you said, he that serves God labors in vain. And what have we gained in that we have kept his ordinances? What good is it, in other words? And in that we have walked as suppliants, or suppliants, I guess, before the face of the Lord Almighty. And now we pronounce strangers blessed. And all they who act unlawfully are built up, and they that resisted God, and yet they've been delivered. It looks like people that do the wrong thing sometimes come out ahead, doesn't it? Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. So that was God's answer. So what they do? Thus spoke they that feared the Lord, everyone to his neighbor. And the Lord gave heed and hearkened. And he wrote a book of remembrance before him for them that feared the Lord and reverenced his name. What does it mean when it says the Lord hearkened? It means the Lord did everything he said that he'd do for those that believed what he said and acted on it. That's what it means, hearkened. Consider, Hebrews, 11, uh, Hebrews 3, 1. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. In other words, God hearkens to your words. What are you saying? What are you saying about the mercy of God in your life? Oh, God, please, in your mercy, just let us not lose our house. How about pay it off? Folks, God hadn't changed. 
Yeah, but how in the world would that work? I don't know. How's it going to work? How's God cause enemy armies to be killed and it takes three days for Jehoshaphat to carry away the stuff? How's God cause water to come from the, the east where there is no sea and fill the valley full, that's uh, got ditches, fill the valley full of water? How's God going to do that? I don't know. How's God bring manna or from heaven? How does God cause quails to come in that feeds three to five million people every day? Seems like you'd run out of quail. Where do they come from? I don't know. But all that was light stuff with God. Light stuff with God. Your problem is a light thing with God. Why don't you believe him for it? Not just believe just to get by. Not just believe to pay the bill. Believe God to get out of debt. Believe God to increase. Believe God to do something miraculous so that everybody will know it was God. Believe God to bless your business in such a way so that everybody knows that you've been doing the same thing for years. It couldn't have been just you. What are you believing for? How big is the mercy of God for you? How big is the mercy of God for you? That's the real question. How big is the mercy of God for you? Remember Jesus, when people would cry out to mercy, he'd ask him, what do you want me to do? Lord, I want to receive my sight. You believe in this? Yeah, I do. What if the guy had been crippled and blind? And he said, Lord, I want to receive my sight. Well, what about being crippled? Oh, I can handle that. I think that's the way a lot of Christians are where the mercy of God is concerned. Well, just get me over this big thing. <laughs> I don't want to ask for too much. John Osteen told a story about how somebody uh, wanted to bless him and, and that he was still a Baptist pastor at the time. They didn't believe in money. He, he said, I was so poor. He said, I didn't have two nickels to rub together. And he said, and he came before uh, the, the board, the Baptist board, and they said, um, John, somebody has, uh, has wanted us, has designated some money to give to you. Well, he didn't know anything about giving and uh, sowing and reaping or anything like that. And so he's still in this real religious, no, I don't need anything. They had the check already made out and was handing him the check. And so he reached out it, it, before he knew what it was. He reached out and just took the edge of it like it was dirty or something, you know, just like that. And when they explained what it was, he looked at it and he said it was a lot of money for him for that, for that time. He looked at it and he said, oh, no, no, I, I, I don't need this. He said all the time something on the inside was screaming to him, yes, you do. But he said, no, I, I don't need this. And he's holding it, hoping that they won't take it back. But he still has it out like this. So they came and they said, well, okay, we'll tell the person. Took it and there it went. I think a lot of Christians live that way. I think a lot of Christians have this idea that, that, that God, oh, God only wants you to live on this little, little sliver right here. When the Bible talks about God making a big, wide place for you. God wants his people blessed. God wants people that will proclaim his mercy and him being the source of his goodness to have plenty. God wants people coming up to you and say, how, do you, how does everything you do work? So you can say, I trust God and I do what the Bible says and I pay my tithes and I'm, I'm generous with the things that he's given me. Really? That works? Oh, yeah, let me tell you all about it. Why wouldn't God want that? Why would God want the, church, want the, the world to come see the church having bake sales I'm sorry. You guys are having a bake sale next week, aren't you? I'm sorry. I really should have picked something else, shouldn't 
Well, there's nothing wrong with the bake sale they're having. I'm so sorry. Why would the world want to see the church begging? That's about, I should have stuck with that, shouldn't I? You think that's the picture God wants his people to have in the world? Begging. Mostly from the world. Mostly from sinners. Well, maybe we can get a Christian discount. Are you kidding me? Days that I used to play golf, they'd give a pastor discount on, on Monday. That used to make me so mad. I'd say, why do you give pastors a discount? I said, because y'all are poor. But man, I can afford to pay for my golf. I'm not going to let you think I'm some beggar person. God pays me well. Now, what, if you were God, which way you, would you want your people to be seen? As folks that are looking for the handouts of the world? People that are blessed because they serve you. Folks, trust God for turnarounds. I don't mean just getting by. I mean turning things around. Go from defeat to victory. Whatever area it is, whether it's healing, whether it's finances, whatever it is, believe God to turn things around. That's the God you serve. That's what His mercy provides for you. His mercy endures forever. You've got a covenant promise of God blessing you too. You're satisfied. Well, I'm not satisfied yet. I want more. Oh, you're just being selfish. No, no, I've got enough for me. I want to, be, I want to keep going until I'm satisfied because I'm giving all that I want to give. I want to keep going until I'm satisfied to where I'm able to support the things that I want to support. I want to keep going until I'm satisfied with the money that we're giving as a church to missions. I'm not. Not satisfied with that. There's a lot of other good works that we could give to. That's why I want to increase. That's why I want more. I'm not looking to take more money out of the church. I'm looking to get more so that I can put money into the church. Return unto me, the Lord said, and I'll give you torrents of water that will produce for you until you are satisfied, until you say that's enough. Have you gotten there yet? Is God that big for you? Are you happy with a God's... A God's uh, are you happy with a God that's big enough just to pay your bills? Or are you not going to be satisfied till you see the things happen like the, you read about in the Old Testament? Miracles where God turns things around and sets people on high. That's His promise. That's the covenant promise that you have. Well, let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You that it's true. Thank You, Father, for the privilege that we have to be doers of the Word, to accept what Your Word says, in the face of everything that contradicts it. Oh, Father, let us be numbered as those that greatly fear you and that delight in your commandments. Because we know that your word is true, Father, and you'll make our seed mighty upon the earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed, and wealth and honor, wealth and riches shall be in our house, and our righteousness will endure forever. Oh, thank you, Father, that you are the God of mercy the God of mercy, the Father of mercy, and the God of all comfort. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a faithful and merciful high priest, faithful to honor our words spoken by the instruction of the Lord. Therefore, we declare, say this with me, we declare that the blessing of God is ours. We declare, because we're doers of the word, 
Our seed is mighty in the earth. And wealth and riches are in our house. We honor the Lord with our substance and the first fruits of our increase. Therefore, our barns are filled with plenty. And our presses burst forth with new wine. We declare, according to the covenant of God, that we are a debt-free people. In the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for ordering our steps, showing us the adjustments we need to make, guiding us, and leading us by the Holy Ghost. But we declare that we are a debt-free people, that abundance is ours, that we are blessed in order to be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, let's all stand together. Don't forget, uh, we are having a prayer meeting tonight at 5 o'clock, and healing school will be at 6. If you're able to come back and be with us, we invite you to those services. Let me encourage you. Put your faith on increasing. Challenge the mercy of God. Did you hear that? That wasn't what I meant to say. Challenge the mercy of God. Expect God to do bigger things than you ever thought of before. Watch and see Him do it. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.